right, good morning. Happy New Year. It's fun to be here with you guys all on New Year's Eve. Normally my family has uh, traveled to Texas this time of year and are there with family, so we don't get to always celebrate the New Year with you all, but we get to this year. So it's fun to be here with you all this Sunday. Everybody, this is the later crowd, so we slept in, so we're ready for the party tonight, yes? All right, if you got a Bible, go to Luke chapter two, Luke chapter two. We're continuing at looking at the birth of Jesus, the birth narrative, uh, and the different aspects of that narrative. And what we're gonna be doing as we come into January, starting next week, is we're gonna turn to the Gospel of Mark, and we're gonna look at the life of Jesus, some of the works that he did while he was on earth, as a way of continuing to trace through the life of Jesus, all the way from birth, to his cross and then resurrection at Easter time. So we're just gonna kind of continue in that narrative, uh, leveraging the way the scripture paints the story for us in narrative form, helping us enter into the story. And that's really part of our goal in doing it this way, is that we would enter into the story, almost if, if we can't get ourselves in our minds, in our hearts, into the narrative that God has given us. Part of the beauty of scripture is the different genres of scripture, uh, whether it be poetry in the Psalms or whether it be letters that are written from one of the apostles to a certain church. They all serve different purposes. One of the purposes of God giving us some of his word in narrative form, in story form, is to help us enter into the story. There's something about us that enters into a good story, right? I mean, the best movies, the best books, you can imagine yourself in the story, you're there. I mean, you're, you're so engrossed. You know, someone could sneak up on you while you're reading that good book and just surprise the heck out of you because you're so engrossed, yes? Yeah, so that's, that's part of the purpose of narrative. It's why we're gonna spend a little time just entering into the story of the, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But let's take a little time now at the outset of our examination of this text in Luke chapter two about Jesus being dedicated in the temple and his interaction with uh, two righteous individuals named Simeon and Anna. That's the story we're gonna look at today. But as we're entering into that, let's take a moment here on Jan uh, December 31st, not January 31st, uh, December 31st, and let's take stock of the year just for a moment. So I want you to grab uh, your device, open to the notes section, grab a piece of paper and a pen. You can grab a pen and write it in your hand. I don't care, all right? But we're gonna write stuff down. Everybody with me? Okay, yes, awesome. Same as the last audience, some of you are resistant to leadership. <laughs> and you were like, I'm not doing it because you're telling me to do it. It's okay, let me gently coax you now. Come, come. All right, so let's take stock, and there's gonna be a reason for this. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take stock of some things that you took pleasure in this year, things you took pleasure in this year, something that just brought you delight, okay? So think about and write down or, or, or jot it in your notes, in your phone, something that brought you pleasure this year, a gift that you got. So we're just on the heels of Christmas. There was probably some gift giving and receiving. Uh, what is a gift you received this year that brought you a lot of pleasure? Really enjoyed it. You were particularly thankful for it. Okay, see some people writing stuff down. Now we're gonna go person by person. We're just gonna use the rest of our time to say what those gifts were, okay. <laughs> You're gonna be like, but that, it's not the one that the person next to me gave me. All right, how about this? What is um, an accomplishment, an achievement from this year in school, at work, in your family, something that you took a lot of pleasure in that was accomplished this year, maybe it was a home project or a particularly difficult project at work that you completed. Something come to mind? How about a trip you took this year that you took a lot of pleasure in? I don't know if, not everybody probably took trips, but if you took a trip this year, was there any trip that you took a lot of pleasure in this year? Just one that was particularly enjoyable? Okay, taking stock of that. And again, some of you are thinking like, I need like 20 minutes to think about this. Just, just first instinct, first gut, all right? If you're a long processor, this is not an exercise for you. Okay, we're just gonna, we're moving. All right, how about something that happened in a family member's life this year? You took a lot of pleasure in. A family or a friend, we'll say a family member or a friend, something that took place in their life that, man, you just delighted in. Not you, it wasn't about you, it was about somebody else. You took a lot of pleasure in it. It's a good thing to take pleasure in other people's victories, yes? When someone we love gets a win, we wanna celebrate it. All right, last one. What is a way that you've grown this year? 
you've grown in your character. It could be a skill set maybe that you've grown in. But I'm thinking in particular of a way that you've grown more like Christ this year and you, you're delighting in that. By the way, I want to say this is important. There's this misnomer sometimes that authenticity means always just admitting faults, but an authentic follower of Jesus is both admitting faults and celebrating victories, yes? Because if we're walking with Jesus, there's, there's growth happening. There's maturity happening. And we got to celebrate that as well, right? Because if you're only ever celebrating or, or admitting the faults, you get this false notion that somehow uh, Christ isn't at work in you in as powerful a way as he, as he is. I hope that you can look back over the last year and go, man, I, I've grown. I have grown in this way. Otherwise, what we're doing here has been a waste of time, right? We're, we're seeking to grow in Christ's likeness in godly character. <coughs> All right, so we've written those things down and we can keep going, but that's enough for today. Here's what I wanna say. C.S. Lewis, if you know that author, famously said, that the completion of our enjoyment of something is our statement of praise about that thing, that we complete our enjoyment of something when we praise it. He makes the point that if you have a spouse, a significant other, you don't often just enjoy them silently, you enjoy them verbally. You, you almost complete your enjoyment of them by saying, man, they are wonderful in this way or in that way. And I think that's really true. He wrote that when he was reflecting on the Psalms. And what we're going to find today as we come to our passage in Luke chapter 2 is that God is in a way completing his pleasure in his son by just telling us all the things he finds are wonderful about them. Before he's really even done anything in the world, God is going to be communicating through our text today, I take so much pleasure in my son. God the Father saying, I love and enjoy and take pleasure more than anything else in my son. And I want you to share in that pleasure. I want you to share in the pleasure I have in Jesus, whom I've sent to you, sent into the world. And now just a few weeks old, God is really going to dote on his son the way a good father dotes on his son. So shall we turn there? Yes? All right, so if you've got your Bible, Luke chapter two, I just want to walk you through the story, and as I said, we're trying to enter into the story, so I'm just going to take it piece by piece, make some notes about the text while we go through it, and then I want to draw your attention to just a couple applications at the end, okay? So we're going to save our application for the end, see what we can learn by walking through the text. And there's some interesting points here, or at least I, I think you'll find them interesting. So let's start in verse 22 of Luke chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification, meaning it says there, meaning Mary and Joseph, but really Mary's purification. According to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, so right there at the outset, we read it and we are immediately getting the sense that they're drawing, Luke is drawing us back to the Old Testament. We might wonder, well, why? What, what does this have to do with the narrative? And how is this God showing us his pleasure with his son? Well, let me give you a little bit of historical background, a little bit of Old Testament background, and then I'll show you what God is doing here. So the first thing you need to note is that there are two Old Testament laws that Mary and Joseph are fulfilling by bringing Jesus to the temple in order to dedicate him. The first is found in Leviticus chapter 12, and it's Mary's purification. So under the Old Testament law, when a woman had a child, she was ceremonially unclean, not morally unclean, but ceremonially unclean for a period of 40 days. Uh, and so at the end of that time, she would offer uh, an offering for ceremonial cleansing. It was part of the law. Men and women would do it. In this case, a woman who had given birth as a way of saying, okay, I have, I'm unclean because of uh, uh, coming in contact with someone who's a leper or I'm unclean for this reason. And so there's an offering, there's a process, all meant to invoke and point our attention to the holiness of God and that there, there's not just a, you just can't approach him any way you want. There has to be a purifying in order to approach him. So that's what is in the law there in Leviticus chapter 12. And so Mary's coming to fulfill that law. She's offering a sacrifice for ceremonially cleansing and making clean. The second thing is they said they came to present Jesus at the temple. So they are referring back to Exodus 13 when it says, as it's written in the law of the Lord. And under the Old Testament law, every firstborn animal, 
And every firstborn male child was dedicated to the Lord, was offered to the Lord. So an animal would literally be offered as a sacrifice, but a child would be redeemed back. Okay, the Lord was not in favor of child sacrifice, but because he was pointing them to and reminding them of the fact that he had delivered them from Egypt and brought them out of Egypt by the offering of the firstborn sons of Egypt and by delivering them through the blood of the lamb spread over the doorpost, if you remember the Passover, bringing their sons and delivering them out of Egypt. And he says, every firstborn belongs to me as a reminder of how I delivered you from your slavery in Egypt. And you are to make an offering of your firstborn or to redeem that firstborn so that you don't sacrifice them with an offering, Numbers 18 said, of five shekels. So what's going on here? Why all this sort of recounting of the law? Well, number one, just like we saw in the birth narrative, God is showing us that Mary and Joseph are righteous. They obey his law. They, they understand what the law is. They understand that Jesus is to live underneath and in fulfillment of that law in order to bring about righteousness through his life. And so they bring him according to the law and follow what is stated in the law. But there's more going on here than just that. And there's two things that you might not note if you're not paying like really close attention to the text. So the first thing that you note is this. The offering that is prescribed in Leviticus for the ceremonial cleansing that Mary would be uh, offering is the two turtle doves or the pigeons that are noted here, or if you can afford it, a lamb. Now, the fact that she offers two turtle doves, and Joseph does, is an indicator that they don't come from great means. They don't have a lot of money, and so they're offering the lesser of the two offerings. And I cannot say definitively that this is the case, but I find myself wondering if part of God's intention in this too is that the offering that she's making is not a lamb because she holds the lamb in her arms. The one who is able to make pure, who's able to truly cleanse once and for all is the child that she's holding in her arms. And the reason I think that might be the case is not just because they were poor, they had less means, so they operated under the law, under the offering that was less expensive, but because of what happens next. The second piece of law that's being fulfilled is Exodus 13. And I already said in Numbers 18, you would offer five shekels as a, at the temple as a way of saying, we're redeeming our child back so as not to put them to death. We're making an offering to the Lord. But what's absent in this text is that Mary and Joseph never offer those five shekels. There's never an offering made to redeem Jesus back from the Lord because he is the Lord's sacrifice. He is the one who will be offered to the Lord. He is the fulfillment of the law that they are coming to obey and to come underneath. He's the one who brings all of that law to fulfillment and completion as the lamb who will be offered. So rather than offer the five shekels to redeem him back, he is left in the arms of the Lord. He belongs completely and wholly to God. Rather than being, having his life redeemed back, he gives his life to redeem ours. Do you see that? So in these two verses that seem like they're just about some Old Testament laws, what we're being told is God takes so much pleasure in his son Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of righteousness under the law. Before he's done or said a thing, before he's been offered, God looks down and sees what his son will do and takes so much pleasure in the life that he will live that he declares a few weeks after he's born, I take so much pleasure in him. He is your perfect righteousness. He is the perfect fulfillment of all of my righteousness and holiness wrapped up in a little child. Isn't that amazing? So that's how the story begins. And now Simeon's gonna come on scene. So let's keep moving, shall we? Through the text. So first we see that he takes pleasure in his son, in his ability to fulfill the law before he's even fulfilled it. And now in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Okay, this is the only place Simeon is referenced. Wouldn't it be awesome if the only time you're ever talked about the thing that's, the way you're described is that you are righteous and devout? What a great description. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit 
into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, pause. He didn't say pause, I'm saying pause. (coughs) Because we need to note something here that I want you to see. Now I said this text turns its attention to Simeon and the interaction he's gonna have with Jesus, but actually the verses I just read to you are not about Simeon. We get a description of him that he is righteous and devout, a wonderful description. We never see Simeon before this and we're never gonna see him after this. And his anonymity, his lack of fame throughout scripture, that this is the one moment that we see him is very intentional in the text. The first thing I need you to note is there's another character in the story that came up three times in those two verses that I read to you. Who was the other character in the story? It's the Spirit. Did you see that? The Spirit was on him. The Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. The Spirit then led him to the temple at just the right time so that he could meet the Christ in fulfillment of the promise that the Spirit had made. Do you see that the text is shouting at you, this isn't about Simeon yet. This is about me and what I'm doing through my spirit. So the spirit is sort of the hero of these sets of verses as the narrative progresses. Why? Because God is telling us that he takes so much pleasure in his son that he has sent his spirit into the world to constantly testify about him, to be constantly making people aware and shaping them in such a way that they see how wonderful Jesus is. That's the point of these handful of verses. You see, yeah, Simeon comes and he's gonna have some things to say that are really helpful, but the real point is the Spirit had indwelt in a unique way Simeon. And under the Old Covenant, that's a unique movement of the Spirit to be on a servant of the Lord in a way that is different than how he normally operated under the Old Covenant. And then the Spirit reveals something to him about the very purpose of his life, which we're gonna come to in a moment. And then the Spirit says, go now to the temple. Can you imagine, just think about the law and all the offerings and the dedications of children that I just talked about. How many kids would have been coming into the temple day after day after day to be dedicated and then redeemed back with that five shekel offering, the oldest born children of the people of Israel, And of all those children, Simeon is brought to the temple, and in that moment, who does he recognize? He recognizes Jesus as the one. He says, here is the Lord's Christ. Here is the Lord's Savior. It's the Spirit that's doing that work. So friends, here's the point. The Lord takes so much pleasure in his Son that he has put his Spirit in the world to always be talking about him, to always be revealing him. And here's how that works. If you've come to Jesus You came because the Spirit revealed him to you. You didn't come because you figured it out. You came because the Spirit opened your eyes and revealed to you the glory of the Son. And if you are in Christ, it's the Spirit who is in you every day revealing Christ to you so that you would become more like him. If you ever wonder, Spirit, what are you doing? The answer is making you more like Jesus pointing to Jesus, glorifying Jesus, revealing Jesus, showing you what he's like in all of his fullness and all of his glory and all of his majesty. Can I point out for a second, by the way, that your experience, church, family, followers of Jesus, your experience of the Spirit right now in this moment sitting here in the sanctuary is richer and deeper than anything Simeon ever experienced. We read this and we go, wow, The Spirit revealed that to him, wow. The Spirit anointed him, chose him for this purpose, wow. We marvel at this work of the Spirit and we forget that you have a fuller experience and a fuller work of the Spirit right now, in this moment. He is illuminating Christ to you now. He is shaping you from the inside to be like Christ, not from the outside, Praise God. That's how much he delights in his son. He's determined to plant his spirit in his people so that they would know and take pleasure in his son the way he does. Now, here's the, the text keeps going. Shall we keep going? All right, so here's what we find. If you say no, I don't know what to do. I ask these rhetorical questions. You're sweet to answer them. And I'm like, I'm just gonna keep going. 
All right, so he takes Jesus up in his arms and he blesses God. So in other words, he's worshiping God with these prophetic words of praise. He's gonna add his prophetic words of praise to those of the angels, Mary, Zechariah, the shepherds. You remember throughout the birth narrative, there's been all these prophetic, like just, it's almost as if something so great is happening. People can't shut their mouths. They're just overflowing with these words and the spirit is bringing forth these prophetic words. And here we go, Simeon now is added to the list. And we just look at the first sentence he speaks. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Just think about that for a moment. Simeon does not say, what could Simeon say? He could say, oh, the Christ is here. The one that you promised I would get to see is here, now we can really get to work. Now we can really get down to what, what are you gonna do? If I'm Simeon, maybe I'm thinking, can I buy the house next to Mary and Joseph because I just wanna watch how this is all gonna unfold. I just wanna join in and I wanna see what are you going to do with this one? But that's not what he says, is it? He understands that his purpose is this moment. His purpose in the plan of God is this moment. And when it's fulfilled, he's content. We don't know what happened to Simeon before. We don't know what happened after. We don't know if he dies right after this. We said, he says, I can depart in peace. Could you imagine being so content with whatever God has prescribed for you in life that when you know you've fulfilled that purpose, you say, I'm good. Ready to go, Lord ready to go. It's all I needed. And I mean, there's such a part of me that's like, but Simeon, don't you want to see what's going to happen? Don't you want to see how this plan of salvation is going to unfold? I mean, he's about to prophetically talk about salvation for all the nations through this little one who he's holding in his arms and he's looking down at him and his thought is not, what am I going to do for you next, Lord? It's you're doing something amazing. It's not about him. It's about the Lord. You're doing something amazing. You gave me a part in it. I'm at peace. It's almost as if he says, I can just hand the baby back now. And if you just want to take me right on up to heaven, I'm good. I don't know that many of us live that way. But Lord, I, I want to get married before you take me home. But Lord, I want to have kids before you take me home. But Lord, I want to walk my daughter down the aisle before you take me home. But Lord, I want to, but Lord, I want to, but Lord, I want to, but Lord, I want to. What if we just said, I'm here as long as you want me here to do whatever you want. And when that's done, I'm done. You have numbered my days. Praise you. You have determined all the works that I should do beforehand, that I should walk in them. And when they're done, and I'm no longer of service to you, let me come home. It's pretty amazing, right? Simeon just says, just let me do what you gave me to do. And it's just this, what seems pretty small, right? I mean, just, yeah, you want, I'm gonna hold him, and I'm gonna say, he's here. And then I'm done. Pretty amazing. Now, in the same way, Anna, let me drop down. For my nonlinear people, you're gonna love this because we're going out of order now, okay? So just drop down because we wanna see Anna's response as well. That's Simeon's, and, and here's Anna in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. So scholars debate, so she was married seven years and then they debate whether she lived 84 more years after that or whether she was 84. So she's either 84, she's like 104 basically or something along those lines. But she's up in years is the point. And then we find this. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, again, you can, in narrative, you know, when you tell a good story, sometimes you 
use some hyperbole or you use some imagery, and that's what's happening here. Anna didn't literally live in the temple, but it would be like if I was, you know, at the gym so much, you could say, well, he practically lives there. Clearly, I do not. But you can imagine if you said, well, they, they are at the, you know, the coffee shop so much, they practically live there. That's essentially what they're saying, what the author is saying about Anna. Luke is saying she was constantly at the temple. Why? She'd been married she lived that portion of her life, and then she determined, I just want to give the rest of my life in service to the Lord. That's all I'm concerned about. And so I'm in the temple day by day, fasting and in prayer, waiting on the Lord's purposes, waiting on him to bring the one. And God had set apart Anna and Simeon for this moment. We never hear about them again. They're here for this moment because God takes so much pleasure in his son that he delights for the very purpose of human lives to revolve around him. Whether that part that you play is small or great, whether it seems small or great, don't you imagine that God was well pleased with Simeon and Anna? Don't you imagine that? I don't know what part the Lord has for you or for me necessarily in all the days that we live, but I know this, our purpose is in illuminating Christ to people. Get Jesus to the people. Get the light of Christ everywhere. And God takes so much pleasure in his son that he sets up people's lives to revolve around his son so that his light goes everywhere. Now let's continue in the narrative. Go back now to Simeon's words. He's talked about his own purpose and he can depart in peace. Now look at what he says next. Verse 30. Why can I depart in peace? For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Here's what I want you to note now. Now, he's, he's stated the centrality of Jesus to, you know, sort of their individual, his purpose within life, but then he expands that much bigger. He goes, he's not just the center of my life, this little one that I'm holding. He's the center of the lives of all people from all nations. He is here to save people, not just at this small individual scale, but on the broad scale. He's come for all peoples. Did you catch that? And then he says something really unique that I think is meant to highlight wherever you are spiritually. Because he says, he is light for revelation to the Gentiles. And what he means there is he illuminates what truth and righteousness are to people who have no idea about it. <coughs> to people who would have denied the very existence of God and lived according to their own moral compass, people that, we, that, that love and enjoy the things of the world. He says, he has come to illuminate, to be light for that person. So in other words, the most worldly person, the person least in, you know, enjoying God, least aware of who God is. He's come for that person. He's light for revelation to them. And then he doesn't say he's also light for revelation to the Jews or to Israel. He says he's glory for his people Israel. And that doesn't just mean that he's able to make Israel look great. I think what he's saying there is Israel had the advantage of the law and the prophets and the Old Testament revelation about who God was. They knew much about God, but what they lacked was an internal righteousness. They had the appearance of righteousness through the law, but could not accomplish that righteousness down deep in the very heart, in the soul where it needs to be. They couldn't be that. And to have glory is to have weightiness. That's what that word means. The Old Testament word is kavod, and it means weightiness, like weightiness of character. To have glory is to be through and through consistently righteous consistently like God, to have that kind of weight of character. What gives your word weight? Think about it this way. When I say, oh, his words or her words hold weight with me, why do they hold weight? Because I know based on their character, right, that those words are gonna be kept. They're gonna be fulfilled. They are true, and what they're saying they will do. And that's exactly kind of the idea behind that Old Testament idea of glory. It's both, it's basically the, the radiant splendor that a being possesses because they are through and through righteous. That's what it is to have glory. And he's saying, I can make those who have the appearance of righteousness actually righteous, through and through, down to the depth. So put all that together. And when he says this little one, is light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for his people Israel. 
He's saying the father takes so much pleasure in his son that he has deemed that he would be the one by whom the most self-righteous religious person who is lost in their own sense of goodness will be saved. And he is the one through whom the person who is most off the reservation and ignoring God and even denying his existence and just living in perhaps moral ill repute, like what, however far off they may be, he, he can save that person as well and everyone in between. Praise God, yeah? So God, again, he's just showing us his pleasure with his son, just again and again and again. Now let's note one more thing and then let's draw a couple applications That'll be our time together today. So look at verses 33 through 35, the last verses we haven't looked at. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So there's a lot of that in Mary and Joseph's lives right now, yes? The shepherds show up and they're like, what? Gabriel shows up and they're like, this is amazing. There's a lot for them to be pondering these days. And now we're a few weeks removed and Simeon takes their child up in his arms in the temple and they marvel again. They're just going, Lord, what are you doing? And Simeon blessed them. Now, we're gonna find out that blessing is an interesting word to choose here. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed. What does it mean to be appointed? It means to be chosen for something, right? So God has determined that this should be what will happen. This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, listen, how many of you, if somebody came and spoke those words to you, particularly as a, as a mother of a newborn, would feel real blessed by those words? What is Simeon pointing to prophetically? What is God's spirit working through him? When he says a soul a sword will pierce through your own soul. He doesn't just stop there. What's the next word? Also. That means somebody else's soul is getting pierced with a sword and therefore Mary's soul is getting pierced with a sword. Who will be pierced that will cause Mary to be pierced? It will be the child. It will be this one Simeon is holding in his arms. He will be pierced unto death. And what God is declaring is his pleasure with the sacrifice of his son, a perfect offering of righteousness, as we said before, in fulfillment of the law. What does he say? This child will be the rise and fall of many. How? Because he will be a sign that is opposed. It is through opposition to him. In other words, through his death, through his piercing. And then what will happen as a result of his piercing? Through that, many hearts will be, what? Revealed. Good job. Many hearts will be revealed. What's he saying to us? Your heart is revealed when you come to the sacrifice of the Son. What reveals who you truly are is what you do with the cross of Jesus. Do you count it foolishness or do you count it the wisdom and power of God? If you count the cross the sacrifice of the son, the piercing of the son, the shed blood of the son, if you count it as wisdom and power from God, you rise. If you count it as foolishness, you fall. God is declaring not just his favor with his son in his teaching, in his moral righteousness, he's declaring his pleasure with the sacrifice his son will make when he becomes a man, right here at the outset, do you see it? And he is saying to you and to I, to everyone who's ever lived and breathed, what you do with the soul-piercing work of my son determines whether you rise or whether you fall. What will you do with it? Will you take it and trust in it and believe in it? Or will you reject it? And you have that choice to make. You have that to deal with, but friends, listen, let me, let me show it to you one other way, and then like I said, we're gonna come to application. This child grows up, he lives, he dies, and then at the end of the story, we're told that he'll come again, and when he comes again, listen to this description of him from Revelation chapter 19. This is the child that Simeon is holding in his arms, 
And look at how he appears now. Verse 11, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I need you to note the distinction between his first coming when the angel said, peace on earth, and now his second coming, he comes to judge and to make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Friends, what I want you to see there is that robe dipped in blood is his own blood. What makes him the one who comes to judge the living and the dead? It's the fact that he has given himself in sacrifice. His robe is covered in his blood, therefore he is righteous to judge. It's the same thing that happens in Revelation 5. We sing about this moment in the heavens in Revelation 5 sometimes. And the thing I need you to see is that in that moment, Revelation 5, what's happening is that there's the, the audience in heaven in John's revelation is saying, there, God has these scrolls and no one can open them. And the purposes of God, specifically the judgment of God, can't go forward and God vindicate in all his righteousness, his plan for the world, unless someone can open the scrolls. And there's crying and weeping until the lamb comes on the scene and we're told, don't cry anymore because the lamb is able to open the scrolls. And why is he declared worthy to unfold the scrolls and make it possible for God's purposes to go forward in the world, specifically his plans for judgment for the rising and falling of people. So that we're told because he is the lamb who was what? Slain. And by his blood, he has redeemed people, praise God. Not just brought them to judgment, but redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. It's by his blood that he redeems and it's by his blood that he judges, which is why Jesus, or God, in this moment where Simeon's holding him and declaring these prophetic words is saying, what will you make of the blood of my son? What will you do with the cross? He's showing his pleasure with it even now, which is important because the cross becomes the thing that any sane human would presume God had rejected him in that moment. And he's saying years and years and years in advance of that moment, this is not a rejection, this is an appointment. This is a work in which I take pleasure. This is designed by me, it's designed by the Son. We determined it together and we delight in it. I have sent, he has come, and he has obeyed. Praise Jesus, yes? Out of the mouths of kiddos. All right, let's do a couple applications. Can we do a couple applications in the few moments we have left here? So I just wanna point out a couple to you. Uh, number one is just the most obvious one. If this text is about God taking pleasure in his son again and again and again in all these variety of ways, then clearly what he's saying to us is take pleasure in my son. Is that fair? Take pleasure in my son. And friends, I mean take pleasure in all that he is. Don't just take pleasure in the little baby in Simeon's arm. Take pleasure in the warrior in Revelation 19 riding on the white horse. Take pleasure in everything that he is. One of the things that keeps people from coming to Jesus is that they believe that they, if they just say, yeah, I, I think he's a really great teacher. He was a good moral leader. He was maybe a prophet. Uh, you fill in the gap. Whatever maybe you might be thinking. Like, I, yeah, I delight in that part of who Jesus is, but the exclusionary stuff, the stuff about believe in me and I'm the only way to life and the stuff about coming to judge, like, you just, you can't just have the stuff you want. God takes pleasure in all that his son is as the full representation of who he is. Therefore, it's our job to take pleasure in all that the son is. Do you see that? Come to him and celebrate everything he is. Redeemer, man, praise you, God. Judge, praise you, God. There's no one who can judge righteously. Praise God that you're not the judge. 
Praise God that I'm not the judge. Praise God that he's the judge. With perfect power, perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect love, perfect justice, he will judge perfectly. That's the first application. Just delight. Delight in all that he is. The second application I I want you to see here uh, is to rest in all of his law-fulfilling work. Rest in all of his law-fulfilling work. And here's what I mean by that. When you become a believer, here's the journey that I know that you're on, is you go from being someone who probably at some point was convinced that, that you had to do good things to get God to like you. You had to earn your righteousness. And then when you, the Spirit revealed to you that you couldn't do that, and that only Christ could be righteous, and that you just needed to receive his righteousness, then what happens is you go, well, what about all the good things that I should be doing? How do I do those now? Here's the journey of every Christian. How do I do those as a response to the grace of God and the love of God, rather than as as if I'm functionally trying to earn it? And we always wrestle with that, don't we? We have these subtle ways that we kind of return again and again to this works-based righteousness where we think, you know, God will love me more, he'll be more pleased with me, or I'll earn some merit with him. I mean, it's, you know, if I do this, then I can return and pray again. You know, we do all these little silly games, all this, this foolishness that is really our struggle with going, I have good works to do, I want to do them, but I have to do them as a response to grace given, not as a way that I'm subtly believing that I earn my righteousness. And we get sucked into that all the time. So I'm not gonna try and preach another text, but I'll just point you to Ephesians chapter two, verses four through 10. Let me just make a couple quick points without even turning there necessarily. I mean, you can if you want, but I'm just gonna make a couple quick points there because it's really helpful as a text to help you understand the difference between doing works, good works, as a response to grace rather than try to get merit from God. Because we are to do good works, yes? So Ephesians 2.10, it ends with this phrase. It begins by talking about man. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. He, he saved us. By grace, you are saved, right? And so it's this beautiful statement of like, that's where we start. We start with grace. And it ends in verse 10 by saying, we are saved by grace and then we walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So it ends with these like, do, do these good things that God has given you. And there's a couple points along the way that are really helpful in instructing us. So the first is what we find in verse six where he says that our lives, our identities are at the right hand of God the Father with Christ, and so he's starting with identity, and the first thing that I wanna encourage you is do everything in your power before you do the works that God gives you to do to remember who you are first. You must start there. Do everything to constantly remind yourself, write it on your bathroom mirror, write it on a note card in your car, have friends around you who are constantly reminding you, you are a son or a daughter of the king, you're redeemed, you are loved. The more you remind yourself of that, the the easier it is to go, now just let me respond to that. Let me be who I am. Let me live out of that identity rather than I'm gonna try to earn that identity. But you, if you kind of forget that identity, don't talk about it, don't remind yourself of it. Do you see how easy it is to start slipping backwards and go, oh, I've reversed the order. I'm doing the works to try to get the, the love, to get the approval, rather than going, I am approved, I am loved, and now I do the good works as a response. So the first is do everything in your power to remind yourself of that identity day by day by day. The second is what we find in verse nine of that, where he says, you've been saved by grace, not a result of works, so that no one may, anybody know the completion of it? So that no one may boast, so that no one may boast. Here's the second thing I would say to you. When you do the good works God gives you to do, don't draw attention to yourself. Don't do them for other people to see. Now, I don't mean that when people see them and go, hey, great job, I really appreciated seeing you do it. I mean, you have to play the false humility card and pretend like you didn't do it. And just, just say thanks and move on. Say thanks, praise God that he gave me that opportunity. I'm thankful for that. Praise God for that. Just do that. That's, that's all you need to do, okay? So, but what you don't do is try to draw attention to the good that you've done. And look, I've admitted this before. I'm totally guilty of being the person who's like, I do like two chores around the house, and I'm like, Amanda, did you see? 
did you see? Folded some laundry. Meanwhile, she's done 12 things that like I didn't even notice, you know? Don't draw attention to your good works. Here's the thing is when you are drawing attention to them, it's, it's at least in part because you're believing you're earning some merit through them and you need people to notice it. You need them to see. There's at least some part of you that is caught up in that works-based righteousness. So friends, this can be a tough one, but let go of, who, of getting credit. Yes, can we? So let go of getting credit. Who cares? The Lord sees. The Lord sees. It's enough. The last thing is he says that in verse 10, that he's prepared good works in advance beforehand that we should walk in them. Can I just tell you, does it give you comfort to know that the Lord has prepared the good works he wants you to do? He's picked them out for you. He's established them for you. He's charted the path. So here's the thing I wanna tell you. Do the things he's given you to do and don't do the things he hasn't. Of a plate that's too full, friends, is often an indicator that we're trying to earn some merit with God or we're charting our own version of what we think a successful life is. There is freedom in going, God has a purpose and a design for me to accomplish, and that's the work I need to be doing. That's what I need to be about. I don't, he gives you something to do and he gives me something to do and those things are probably quite often not the same. You don't have to do everything. He has not prescribed for you to do everything. So listen, seek the Lord, understand the gifts he's given you, which that's step one. We, we've been talking about that as a staff. We'll see where we go with this, but man, one of the things that I think we've got some work to do on is helping you know what your gifts are because I think a lot of you don't know. And you can't use them if you don't know what they are. So we wanna help you with that. We want you to know what your gifts are and then we want you to use them and we want you to stop fooling around in areas that aren't what God gave you to do. Just leave that for somebody else. Now listen, I don't mean that people come to me and say, hey, I could really use some help with uh, shoveling the snow in my driving. Well, that's not my gift. And I'm gonna pray about that and the Lord didn't say to do it, so I'm not doing it. When the Lord brings you opportunity, say yes to the opportunity, okay? As he brings you, but you can discern in the spirit the work that God has prepared for you to do and then there's whole areas of work that he has not given you to do. And friends, we run, we have an epidemic of busyness. We run our kids ragged because we think it's gonna be the key to their scholarship or something, I don't know. We're defining success all wrong. Success is helping our kids do what God made them to do. Nothing more, nothing less. It's not about the scholarship. Look, most of your kids are not that gifted of athletes anyway. <laughs> or musicians, or they're awesome. Some of them I know are. You're thinking, well, my kid is the exception. You're blind, just like the rest of us. I think my kids are uber talented too, okay? That's not success. Success is not running my kid ragged for the approval of the world. Success as a parent is what did you design my kid for? What did you, gifts did you give them? What did you make them to do? And how do I help them do it? How do I help them walk in that? How do I help them treasure you and take pleasure in you? Everything else is gravy. Just let them do what you want them to know. Listen, our kids, they'll make choices and we'll get our hearts broken by some of those choices and have to, have to guide and direct. Anyway, that's getting into a whole nother field, okay? So that relates to the, the last point. Uh, my, my buddy Brooks, come help me with this real quick. For uh, everyone, welcome Brooks with me. This is my guy. I'm not gonna tell you a whole lot about this. This is two Lego pieces. All I want you to do, if you can, is assemble the Lego pieces. Fair enough? All right, go for it. Don't worry, here, we don't even, oh yeah, you got it, you got it. It's like the Holy Spirit whispering. You got this, Brooks. You nailed it, good job. Give, him, give me five, fantastic job, you're the man. 
He put it together, now here's what you don't know. He was focused on the task at hand, the good work prepared in advance for him. This was his purpose today, to put this together, and it's beautiful, isn't it? You don't know what this is. This is, this is somebody's turtle? It's gray. It's a good guess, it's a good guess. I like turtle, it's not a turtle, you know what it is. This is two pieces of my son's brand new Millennium Falcon that he, and if you know, you know, <laughs> that he received from, from his aunt for Christmas. Now here's the point, Brooks had a purpose, and it was to put together these two pieces. But what Brooks doesn't, didn't know in putting this together is that this is gonna go home and complete a much larger thing. It is going to become the crowning jewel on top of the millennium, it's the guns by the way, you need the guns the crowning jewel on the Millennium Falcon, this beautiful, exquisite piece of art that has been created in my home. Brooks had a part to play. He had a purpose to play. And it may seem like it was just to put together two small pieces, but at the end of the day, the Millennium Falcon is not complete without these two pieces, yes? Revisit your purpose in life. Is it enough for you to do what God gives you to do? Would you say, God, whatever you've designed me for, maybe put these two pieces together in your plan that you are working, this grand, beautiful story that you are telling in the world, redeeming people for your glory, I have a part to play. Whatever it is, I wanna do it. Just like Brooks did his part, thank you, buddy, for teaching us to do our part. Just wanna do my part. And all my, what may seem like being a teacher or, or being a doctor or being a mom, being a dad, being a student, whatever your role is, do you see that you're putting together those pieces, but it's not just about being a teacher, it's not just about being a doctor, it's not just about being a lawyer or a, a mom or a dad. Your purpose in those thing, things fits in a much larger project, yes? You're putting together pieces, not just to put together pieces. You're teaching, not just to teach. You're parenting, not just to parent. You're parenting to bring forth the kingdom of God in the world, to build the Millennium Falcon, the kingdom, Star Wars. We can just wrap it up right there. So friends, those are just a couple of points of application. Above all those, I wanna remind you that God delights in his son and invites you to delight in him as well in all that he is. So let's pray, and then let's sing a song of praise together before we depart and go out into the world to serve him in his kingdom. Father, we thank you for your great pleasure in your son, and we thank you for making it so evident how much you delight in him. Thank you for teaching and instructing us through your word. We pray that you would help us to live according to that word, to delight in the Son the way you delight in the Son. So Father, would you receive our praises now? Our right response to hearing your word declared is to respond with praise. And so we wanna offer you that praise now. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord to conclude our time.